I can just imagine Ken sitting at his computer right now being like, guys, it's been 66 episodes and you still can't clap to help me find a marker. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the Speedster, whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan. The other day I saw somebody trip and fall with a laundry basket full of iron clothes. I just stood there and watched it all unfold. <laughs> well, that's um, that sounds painful, Matt. Your dad joke kind of hurt me this time. It was a little dark. A little macabre, if you will. But it's no less clever. No less clever. That, that is definitely true. And hey, I'm a graveyard player. I like the dark and macabre. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Uh, like Mel Gibson and Tom Harvey before me, I am once again a road warrior recording from a closet this time in a cabin in northern Michigan. <laughs> is R. Kelly in there with you? Um, no, no, not currently. He's, he is not trapped in the closet. He is though. not trapped in the closet with me. Dana, we will be glad to have you back in your regular hometown <laughs> so that you don't have to continue traveling. Yes. But it is really cool that we can say that the cast has been recorded in so many different strange and remote locations. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All our articles and more can be found at edhrec.com along with some awesome featured community content such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And, here on the podcast, we're going to give that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're doing the EDHREC-cast mailbag. It's, yeah, Matt. It's oh. Steve's favorite day. It's mail day. <laughs> <laughs> and Uncle Vernon's least favorite day. He prefers Sundays because there's no post. Matt put out a call for some, you know, fun listener questions because it's been a while since we answered a few of those. And it's a really good opportunity to talk about our personal deck building styles and the way that we approach data here on EDH Rec and the way that we approach games in general. So it's a mailbag of holding. If it oh, were. Stop. Oh, you guys ready? That, you were planning. That how long have you been planning the mailbag of holding joke, Joey? Oh, are you kidding? I'm making sure that we name that as the title All of right. the episode. I'm so no, excited for it. <laughs> no. But you get mad at me for my dad jokes, and then you pull that one out, and it's just, it's so disappointing. My attempt at one-upsmanship has succeeded, I'm sure <laughs> no. of it. All right, how about we don't waste any time, and we just jump straight into the mailbag. Matt, do you want to start firing them off? I sure can. So our first email comes from Michael Woodyard. He says, hello, if you could make a change to Commander, I'm guessing the format, what would you change and why? And do you think the format is currently missing anything? I mean, we're starting off with a pretty big question. It, we're not, you know, very broad. Yeah, that's, that's serious. Uh, so, um, yes, indeed. Would you guys make any changes to the format? You know, myself personally, I, I don't think so. I think it's in a really healthy place right now. Or maybe I would say this, it's as healthy as I think the format can be given the different wants and needs of so many different people that play it. That's a really good caveat in there. Um, and I know, uh, I think earlier this week, actually, uh, Shivam on the Commander Advisory Group, he put out a tweet and just asked people in general, what do you think the format is? What kind of condition do you think it is? And most people are saying it's great. Um, few people had some specific concerns. 
but I think a lot of it, it comes down to personal preference on how a certain thing is executed, but it's, it's small, minute details. I think Commander, especially after all the cards have been coming in over the past year, I think the only thing we can maybe be concerned with is power creep, but there are so many just awesome cards coming out, especially in the past year. I don't know if I would really change anything. The only issue that I think I have personally is just power level concerns, and that's something that every playgroup is going to come across, and that's something that can be solved with a conversation, just how yeah. you handle your playgroup. I don't think that's anything that the player group at large, especially the rules committee and, and the advisory group, really need to worry about. I think that's fair, but unfortunately, I'm actually going to kind of rain on your guys' parade of positivity, uh, because I do have a handful of small details that maybe I wouldn't Of course you slight do. alteration. <laughs> of course I do, I know. Um, one of the things that does come to my mind when, it, when you start examining carefully the rules of Commander is the whole... Uh, dies or exile go to the command zone replacement thing, it can be a little confusing. The thing that comes most to my mind is the banishing light trick, which is different than the wording on Oblivion Ring. When you banishing light or grasp a fate or any such card on someone's commander and then they put it into the command zone, but then the grasp of fate or the banishing light dies, it that commander can be put back into the battlefield, even though it's not in exile. There's a weird, confusing thing there. And also something that I see messed up kind of a whole lot, which is fairly related, is the way that replacement works when you put your commander back into the command zone after it was destroyed. That doesn't count as a dies trigger. And I see that kind of get mixed up a whole lot. Where people will, you know, their commander will go to the command zone and they think that it triggers their blood artist or something like that. It's a very intuitive mistake to make. And to be honest, I kind of feel as though the rules maybe need to lean a bit more towards the way that people think that it would work rather than the exact rule of the commander replacement. I don't know, it's just a little awkward thing that I see come up a whole lot. And the banishing light trick feels a little weird and awkward when I have to explain it, especially to a new person. Well, and, and I think if you want to like drill down to be hyper specific, of course, we can find things like it's super bizarre to me that um, Library of Alexandria is banned and Bazaar of Baghdad isn't. They're two very similar power cards. <laughs> They're both, you know, ridiculously expensive. And I feel like any logic that says one shouldn't be played or one is okay should apply to the other. I mean, like there's there's plenty of little tiny things like that. I agree the the exile trick with banishing light is, you know, a really weird rules interaction that could be cleaned up. You know, I think off-colored fetches maybe aren't a problem, but it's an odd thing that isn't intuitive to people. I think there's plenty of, like, small stuff. Um, and if we wanted to yeah. do a show on, like, tiny things we would change or there are complaints we have, I think we could easily do an hour on it. But I think at a high level, I'm very, I'm generally very happy. Yeah, and, and that's also a great thing to call me out on. Yeah, I'm, Joey's picking at tiny details. Sure. Those are not nearly endemic to the format. They're just like little tiny things that I can't help but notice as like the editor personality, I guess. But yeah, I, I do happen to agree that like the format is feeling really great. Now, what, um, now one there's thing only I, one other thing sure. that I'll mention here. I, I, I've oh. got something I'm going to throw at the end, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. The only other thing that comes to my mind, and really I want to put the caveat on this, that this might be more about my particular play group or the people that I tend to play with than it is about the nature of the format as a whole. But I do kind of feel disincentivized from attacking in Commander. I feel like the rules and the you know high life totals are not built to support a whole ton of attacking unless it's like one big definitely going to kill you kind of swing. 
like incremental combat is not particularly something that I see very much since you leave yourself open and you know there are plenty of cards that can just deal nine damage rather than you having to attack for nine damage and things like that so I would like to see other options you know be created that incentivize attacking a little bit more um, possibly along this the kinds of rewards like the monarch ability or other things like curses and vows but a little bit more palatable for some folks um, just that kind of thing I do like seeing more combat uh, that's something that I see much more in one-on-one -on -one games than I do in commander and I'd love to see it happen more frequently in commander rather than just being reserved for big blowout kind of swings, so, since I just don't happen to see it in my particular groups all that well, often. Well, Joey, let me tell you about this card called Triumph of the Hordes. It is right. wonderful. <laughs> no, hey, that proves my point. Triumph of the Hordes is one of those spells that people cast as a one big blowout kind of attack, rather than incremental damages. Well, yeah, no. so cast it more often then. <laughs> I'm a necromancer. I get creatures back from the graveyard, not spells, good sir. Alrighty, let's move on to our next question. This is from Braden Bodish. Where do you see EDH and Commander going in the next few years? How do you see the format changing? We're starting off with some like deep philosophical questions. Nothing, nothing lighthearted. <laughs> the real, the real journalism happening here at the EDH Retcast. <laughs> we are. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think the past year has been very telling, and uh, just ever since. And I know I keep pointing to it personally because I, I know some people on it. Um, but ever since the play design team has come on board and started shaping standard ever since Guilds of Ravnica, and I know Dominaria right before, uh, we've seen just a massive increase in just how fun overall the sets are. Just very, very good power level-wise, balance-wise. Everything seems supported when they're trying to support an idea or a theme. And so I think, we honestly, we can probably only expect to keep getting better. Uh, just with how much work and effort that Watsi has put into the game in the past few years, I think we're just going to see leaps and bounds of improvement as we keep going. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that definitely the the design team is designing with Commander in mind in the way they weren't just a few years ago, and I think we're definitely seeing that um, in terms of playable cards popping up in all kinds of different sets. I, I do think one trend um, that we're seeing we'll see in terms of the format changing and where Commander's going. Um, I, I don't know how you avoid a power creep, and maybe maybe you don't, maybe that's just yeah. what it is, but like every time a Prismatic Vista comes out that replaces a Evolving Wilds, your deck becomes better and faster, and I mean, how many of those cards do you get, even like without intentionally trying to ratchet up your power level, just by virtue of, hey, this card's slightly better than that one, and if you do that three or four times a year, you know, five years later, your deck is significantly better than it once was significantly faster more consistent whatever without you even trying to do that and you know every time edh rec adds a new feature to make it easier to find that you know theme deck or to find this cluster of cards that whatever that also makes you know it easier for people to just incidentally make their deck better um so i i think there's just a lot of things out there that are steering the format in that direction maybe small scale stuff but it adds up and I, I i don't know if there's a way to avoid that maybe you don't maybe you don't want to but i think it's definitely a thing i've got kind of a, a heartening look on this uh, maybe just sort of like where that might be going i do totally agree that there is like a, a sense of tuning that seems to be um you know pervading the format a little bit maybe the power creep is the way to describe it um but on one of our early episodes we looked at data over the past several years um, looking at things, for example, uh, the average converted mana cost uh, of a deck. 
and it was starting somewhere around the three or something, and then it was slowly going down. And um, over the course of several years, we saw that the average total combined uh, mean of a converted mana cost in a deck was going uh, slightly, very slightly, but you know, efficiently down to a slightly uh, lesser amount as people were tuning their decks. You know, they were playing less of the huge, big, wild stuff, and you know, getting more towards the the tiny incremental cards that will make their deck a little bit faster, a little bit more efficient, things like that. So we can literally measure that you know we are making our decks even if by accident we are making things more streamlined, perhaps. But I do also think that there's a way that um, the format itself kind of cor self-corrects for this. Um, I would posit that we actually get less good stuff as a result of them continuing to print more commanders. You know, in the past, I'd throw anything into a deck just because, you know, that's what I had. And if it didn't necessarily synergize with my commander, I mean, whatever, it was still a good card. But now, as we get more options... Card choices have to become more specialized to each specific commander. So I see the idea of a generic good stuff, quote-unquote, deck going down as every new commander makes a home for a very specific card and a very specific synergy. The more options that we have, the more that each card has to specifically belong to a specific deck, as it were. And you'd get less of the good stuff, quote-unquote. Or at least that's sort of how I see it kind of going. You obviously don't remember your diatribe last week about Yarok, so I'm just going <laughs> to say there still are good stuff decks. Um, I think the, the biggest change, now that I'm kind of thinking and listening to you guys talk, I think the biggest like single change actually to the format probably is going to come from the players and not from the rules committee or wizards. I think, if anything, in the next five years, there's probably going to be another... Oathbreaker, CEDH style variant, or just a splintering of the format, because eventually I think there's going to be so many players with so many different goals for the format, it's going to be inevitable where some people say, we want to play it this way, and there's going to be enough momentum, there's going to be that vocal group that, that localizes and maybe will start their own variant. I mean, we saw that with, sure, Tiny Leaders, Brawl, Frontier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, we can always name the the formats that have tried. And I think that's just going to keep increasing the bigger the player base becomes because the format means so many different things to so many people. Hmm. I don't personally see it going anywhere, but I guess it will be interesting to see whether any, as you call it, splintering occurs. But uh, that's not something that I think I would anticipate occurring. But I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, modern is a thing where it used to only be legacy. So I suppose there is actually a potential. All right, let's move on to our next question. Dana, do you want to tackle this one? Uh, sure. We had a question from Rachel Shamness, and she writes, Hey, Cast, I have a question about balancing themes within an EDH list. How do you keep your deck focused and balanced if you aren't just doing a good stuff build? So how timely is this question? Uh, for example, trying to build an Archangel Avacyn Punisher <laughs> okay. list with effects like True Fire Captain and Stuffy Dow, but she wants to include a cycling package to get value out of Astral Drift or Tech Rest Reformation or Bag of Holding. Um also very, hey, very timely. So as a deck builder, where's the line? How can one plug mechanical holes and, and you know add value cards without diluting the deck into an unfocused mess? And we also got a nice cat picture um, from, from Rachel with this, <laughs> with this email. Yeah, she acknowledges that she knows that we're dog yeah. people. But hey, here is uh, an amazing picture of a cat. It's actually really cool to see how many people sent in dog pictures when Matt happened to mention that. On the... I, did, I did say that I can be bought off, which is true. You can. Um, but dog pictures or just puppy memes in general. As, and as, as I say this, um, my dog, Moose, is trying to get some microphone time as well. Hello, dog. <laughs> Go lay down. Anyways, um, so yeah, the, just re, to recircle to the question, 
how do you balance theme and, and drifting in and out of that and, and make sure that you're not just going to a good stuff type of build? So, Well, yeah, and Rachel also mentions in this uh, in this example that they are, that she's considering True Fire Captain and Stuffy Doll, but then, you know, to also do things like cycling. And cycling could then lead into, you know, discarding cards. Wait, maybe there's a reanimator package in there, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it can all continue. Each of these synergies cascades one into another. So it's difficult to keep the deck focused sometimes. I think this is frankly one of the most heartbreaking and difficult pieces of my particular uh, game, my particular sense on deck building. Um, but the way that I've tried to kind of keep it down is to have basically two plans, a plan A and a plan B. Um, I'll use my Rehan and Ishai deck as an example. So my plan A is that I make a bunch of counters on Ishai and win through commander damage because it's a big flying beater in the air. And plan B is that if Ishai gets removed, as is definitely going to happen, Rehan is there to help move her counters to another creature, like perhaps Alenda, who can then continue to attack. I can move my counters around, so I've always got one big beater on the table. But then plan C, if that thing goes away, Alenda would explode into a bunch of vampire tokens. And then I've got a plan C too, which is great. But I don't want to commit synergies to anything for plan C. I only want to commit synergies to stuff for the plan A, which is the commander damage, and the plan B, which is the big beater. And if I start putting things like Cathar's Crusade or Mazarek or something to take advantage of all those tokens that I know that I can make, well, that's plan C. That's a little too unfocused. So I would say just trying to keep it to the one plan and the backup plan and maybe having a few other plan Cs, but don't put synergies in for the plan C or the plan D or things like that. That's just me, though. What do you guys think? Um, the thing I do a lot of is this is where like building my own personal deck rules tends to help me not violate or not over tweak a deck and turn it into a good stuff mess. Um, the new Ugin would be great in my Vela deck, for example, because so many spells in that deck are colorless. However, one of the rules I decided was I'm only running Tezzerets in that deck. Those are the only Planeswalkers I run. So if a Tezzeret comes out that does the same thing that that the new Ugin does, well, great, then I will run that. But I'm not running Ugin because I, I, I built that rule into that deck. The only Planeswalker is Tezzeret. Um, so you get those kind of things I've found that keeps me focused at least. And for whatever reason I found, again, this might be a me thing, when I apply those rules to creatures specifically, it tends to really help, or, or Planeswalkers to a degree, it really feels like it shapes the, the flavor of that deck. I mean, I, I, it never feels strange to me to have, like, you know, four different black decks all running Knight's Whisper. Maybe because it's a sorcery spell or it's a small-scale spell, I don't know, but it never feels like a generic thing, necessarily, the way that four different black decks all running Grey Merchant of Asphodel would feel much more good stuffy to mm. me. That could be in my head, um, and maybe to other people that isn't the case, but for me, um, particularly creatures, is where I tend to put a lot of hard and fast rules in place and that I won't violate index construction that helps me keep that theme or at least from my point of view, the perception of that theme. Yeah. I, I think just personal accountability is the big thing. Uh, I mean, it, you can make those rules, but just making sure that you actually stick to the rules. Cause I mean, yeah. a rule doesn't mean anything if you're not paying attention to it. So I'd say, it, you know, for this Archangel Avison deck, um, I would say, make sure, you know, if you're playing 25 creatures, Commit yourself and, and hold yourself to, you know, maybe playing 10, 15 creatures that specifically play into that Punisher theme. And you named off a couple, which is a good start. Um, and, and like Joey said, actually, it's a really good point is limit yourself to maybe just two themes. And because really, once you add in all those things that you know you need to have, like you have to have some ramp, you have to have some card draw, those still take up spots in the deck. And so I think it's easy to fall into that trap sometimes that people do where, 
well, I really wanted to do this, so I just cut an extra land, and now I'm at 26 lands. So uh, making sure that you, you know, keep your land count, out, you know, don't change it till after you've playtested a little bit, but hold yourself to those deck rules that you started out with before you even built the deck. Make sure that you're sticking to it while you're tweaking the deck, while you're tuning it. Replace something with something similar. Um, yeah, and then just you know make sure that you you play it, have fun with it still. And if it's not working, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with scrapping a deck and saying this didn't work. Um, and then start over, make a new set of rules that you think you can follow up with, and then try at it again. Or even if it isn't necessarily having those rules in particular, just having you know making sure that you know what do I don't want this deck to do, and the Punisher does seem to be the focus, and that can always stay the plan A. But you can try a different plan B. You can try a, a couple of you know I'll try it with just the Reanimator this time, or I'll try it with just the Cycling kind of thing, um, and then you can just commit to one of those and see which one of them works best with the deck. But I do think that you know not stretching too many of the synergies around to the other things, uh, to the other the plan D or any of the backup ideas. Um, it's certainly cool to have backup plans in the deck, but to make sure that the cards that you're building in to support uh, specific synergy, you know, will go mainly towards the plan A and the plan B, even if you're going to switch around some of those rules or switch around whatever those plan Bs might be, if that makes any sense. I think I've said B a couple of times now, but we move on to the next question. So we'll get to Walker's question then. Um, so Walker emailed us, Walker Talton, excuse me, Sir Talton. Uh, he says, hey guys, except Dana, he knows what he did. I do. I, I have questions. <laughs> I do. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll figure it out. Um, so he says, first, here's a picture of Frank. I know he's, he, he's the most adorable dog empirically to ever exist. Do not choose. And if you don't choose my question, Frank will be sad. Frank is pretty cute, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm partial to, to Moose. I'm sure Monty has a special place in Joey's heart. So empirical evidence will have to be empirically empired out. But his actual question. Wow. So Walker uh, says... What are your thoughts on the ban list? What cards could be unbanned? What cards should be banned? And what do you think about bringing back banned as commanders? Love the content, even Dana's other podcast. Thanks, Walker. First off, Walker, thank you for bringing up the other podcast because... <laughs> I know you'd like that part. The, the con- Yes. I mean, just the, the, uh, the, the, the fight over custody with Dana <laughs> goes on. Lives, lives another month. I love every single thing about this question, especially that it has an adorable dog picture. I think that he's he's probably right. There's there's some objective adorableness to that particular dog, but we should focus on the question: What do you guys think about the ban list? Again, another kind of a heavy hitter. Um, so I, I and I think we kind of talked about this, and you'll you'll hear it when some of our questions come out uh, with Command Zones Commander Summit. Um, I think there's there, like coalition victory to me kind of seems like there's so many hoops to jump through. That one specifically probably could come off, but that's just me and my opinion. Uh, I I know Leovold needs to be banned. I I, I have come to. Come we are to not terms. unbanning him. I don't care how much you love him, Matt. We have come to. I have come to terms with Leovold stays banned. Sylvan Primordial Prime Time. I mean, if it, if it's green and it's banned, it probably needs to be banned. <laughs> I can just blanket that. Um, and I'm saying that as a green player. Um, but then there, there's a couple other questions or questions cards that I'm, I'm torn on. Um, I, I think Banda's Commander probably needs to stay away. I think if, if people are going to abuse it, they're going to find a way to abuse it, whether it's in the command zone or not, especially Gristlebrand. That one, folks, it, that is the demon that does deserve to be banned. Yeah, I think this, this thing, particularly for Commander, it's, um, I think people don't realize 
how how unimpactful it kind of is here compared to other formats. Like if Splinter Twin and Modern gets unbanned, or if um, uh, Stoneforge Mystic gets unbanned in Modern, like that cascades and affects multiple things. It creates or brings new decks into the format that then affect what people play main board and sideboard and other decks to deal with those two things. Um, like that affects modern in a really, really serious way that people have to plan on and work around. I mentioned library of Alexandria before compared to bizarre of Baghdad. If they unban the library tomorrow, I mean, there's, you know, 42 people in this country that own a library. They can start running it in their commander deck. But like outside of that, it doesn't change anything that, that, that we do in our deck. So for the most part, the stuff on the band list coming off the band list isn't really going to change anything that we do in terms of how we construct our decks for the most part. So, I mean, are there cards that could come off it here or there, or maybe cards that could go on it? Sure, but it's I, I think it's the ban list is overhyped in Commander to a degree because people kind of project onto it the same power that it has in other formats. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. I think just the nature being a singleton format, it probably downplays the impact of, like if Sway of the Stars came off the ban list, um, I think it wouldn't have near the profound impact that, like you said, Splinter Twin would have or right. Deathrite Shaman would have if it came off the ban list for, for Modern. I know for me, I didn't personally mind the band as commander idea, but I know it can also be confusing, so... Keeping it simple is probably a pretty good philosophy to use to approach the ban list. Um, there aren't cards that I'd necessarily remove, um, but you know I have my eye on a few. I'm, it's not original to say that I've got my eye on Cyclonic Rift, for example, um, but also one that recently has made a couple of splashes. Every time I've seen Bolas of Citadel, it's kind of completely dominated a game. Um, so I've got my eye on that one as well. Those are things that I'm maybe you know considering might be a, a bit more powerful than we necessarily need but i also you know sort of the throwback to the question that we had at the beginning i do think that the format's in a pretty decent place too so this isn't something you know even if we pontificate about like little things changes here or there or whatever they kind of sound like extreme opinions when we talk about things as extreme as banned cards but honestly it's more of a polite musing than anything else for me yeah, yeah I, I think that makes a lot of sense should we go on to the next question I think we sure should. Can. This one is from Anthony Burchett. Have you ever built a deck that was so wild or so janky or for an archetype so unsupported that it just didn't pan out and you had to take the deck apart? Is that a deck that could be revisited now with any new printings recently? Thanks, guys. Love the show. I love this question, but I don't know if I have a solid answer. Uh, my particular philosophy is usually that I don't build the deck unless I know I have the support for it. So my personality type kind of restricts me from ever you know, trying something that may not have enough support. What do you guys think? I'm sure that there's plenty of jank under your belts, so right? Joey's Joey's too distinguished to build a bad deck, <laughs> is what he's saying. So I think I think I'm too afraid to try something that I I'm not sure if it will work. I think that's actually what it is. It's a complete criticism of my deck building philosophy. That's you guys are probably a bit more adventurous, though. Uh, so I I can say my very first iteration of Gliss of the Traitor was actually. I was trying to make black green Eldrazi and that did not work on any level. So, I mean, you can just imagine just <laughs> knowing Gliss of the Traitor, what Eldrazi do, none of it adds up. It's all bad. Did not work. End of story. <laughs> Dana, what about you? Um, right after, I think it was Fate Reforged came out, um, 
there was the uh, Demir Dragon Silmgar the Drifting Death, um, which has Hexproof, which is really useful on a commander. And whenever it attacks, um, creatures your opponent control your opponent control get minus one minus one for each attacking dragon. Um, so the deck I built was basically running Silmgar and a bunch of one drop flying you know, blue and black creatures, like old stuff like Will of the Wisp or some one-drop fairies or a couple one-drop vampires um, with ways to make them into dragons. Um, there's, you know, oh, the conspiracy, conspiracy and there's... Uh, you know, yeah, there was like, I think, nice. four of them at the time. Um, and it kind of worked if I, assuming I got one of those and I, you know, I didn't want to run nine tutors to find them, but it was a kind of a weird deck, particularly because you can run stuff like... Um, turn to frog, or you can run um, sudden spoiling, or polymorphous jest too. So, like, even if you only have one or two dragons out, you can still kill somebody's board. Silmgar is difficult to deal with, um, and then you can run some like flying synergy with like favorable winds or gravitational shift. But I think it was just too many pieces I was trying to assemble. Uh, however, since then we've gotten you know things like arcane adaptation, which gives you just one more way to turn all your guys into dragons. Um, and there's a few additional dragon support cards that came in, like, the Ur-Dragon deck. Um, so I wonder if today there might be enough pieces to make that deck function. At the time, though, it was just trying to, like, to just to work in the first place, you needed to have a conspiracy kind of card out. And it was just too many asks to have it actually work. I love that idea, though, and here's what especially I love that it represents. Like, I'm, I'm one of those people who I looked once at the Silumgar, the Drifting Death, and I'm like, oh, I'd never run this as a commander. There's no way. And Dana's over here actually trying out stuff that would make it pretty sick. Like, that sounds like an amazing interaction, and that's just, like, sometimes the stuff that I don't even think about. Uh, so, like, I, I actually super love that, and it just, like, it, as a reminder that, like, hey, there aren't commanders that are objectively bad, necessarily. Like, there are ways to turn some of these commanders that you might not give the time of day there sure. are ways to turn them into really cool things. Like, that's a really excellent interaction. Yeah, I, I'm kind of excited listening to you talk about it. <laughs> well, I think it, it was also long ago, long enough ago. I, I think today maybe I'm also maybe a better deck builder. I would have found a way to make it work, or I would have tinkered with it more. I think I gave up too soon on it as well. So that's also something like me as a player that's changed. I think today I would have, if I built that deck, there was enough I liked about it that I would have kept working on it, kind of like my Vela deck, um, whereas back then, I, you know, I, I gave it, you know, however many games before I moved on. And today, I think I would have chipped away and figured out what to what to do with it. Oh, so guys, I came up with my answer. I know what mine is. A all deck right. that I tried that just absolutely didn't work at all. I did once try playing without Group graveyard hug. spells. <laughs> Whoa, I, I don't believe that, Joey. I think see, I, I think you're just lying for good radio. Uh, I mean, probably. Uh, I think actually, let's see. I did. I did play Audric, uh, Lunark Marshall, the one who shares all of the creature keywords. I did play him for a short time, and I think that that deck is actually perfectly fine. Um, it just had a certain tempo to it that I wasn't sure whether I was comfortable with. But I kind of want to revisit it again down the road. Like I, the, I guess the way to describe that is that Audric was very much one of those decks where it either steamrolls or it gets steamrolled, which was kind of an awkward point for me. But maybe I'll revisit that because I think that there's actually a fun dynamic to that type of aggression within a deck. And it's not normal for most of the stuff that I build. Um, so it would be fun to revisit that. And that deck is always going to get better every time that they print new creatures with awesome keywords. So uh, That's you know, actually that's a, a good example, Joey, because I've seen, I think, two different Audric Lunark Marshall decks that I felt like people that made them might have given up too soon. 
Um, I, so I kind of agree. There's a lot of potential there, and I'd, I'd be curious to see what you come up with if you actually worked at it for a while. Yeah, yeah, and and a deck without graveyard stuff. I'm, there we it's go. Very rare yeah. for Joey, but it 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 has been known to happen. All right, Dana, do you want to tackle our next question? Sure. This is from James on our Facebook page. He said he enjoys the groups that use stats and examine decks with those numbers in mind, and he'd be curious on an exploration on Morophon, uh, the all tribe Pablo commander. He's seen similar problems in the game he's watched, which is by the time seven mana come out. His cost reduction doesn't mean nearly as much, and you could have just played a bunch of cards before Morophon. Um, seven mana as an anthem is also not great either. How do you design a deck to work around something with a high CMC where you kind of want to not do things until it's in play to get that payoff? Um, Man, this... <laughs> I think James is actually kind of on a wavelength because this is literally something I was considering on having as a topic for a future show is like figuring out the function and the timing of your commander. And Morphon is a great example of how awkward that can sometimes be. Yeah, I mean, I like I, I think I, it came up you know, when we were first doing this show. I had built a bad Tesa deck using the uh, Dragon's Maze Tesa Carl. She's not called Tesa Karloff. It's Tesa Envoy. The seven mana. Yeah, Envoy of Ghosts, which was very much a problem in that mm -hmm. deck. Like the things I wanted to do with Tesa, because I think she's a good Voltron commander on paper, except for you can't cast her until turn seven, which means you probably can't equip anything on her until turn eight. That's a, you know, assuming you don't have a bunch of ramp, at least. Um, so let's say you get a couple mana rocks and she's out on turn five. That's still a long time to wait to get any kind of payoff at all. Um, so that's enough. I can't say I've personally cracked the couple times I've ran into it. Yeah, I would say that Morphon is best served um, sort of as the precursor to what I can only describe as an explosion. Uh, maybe running Morphon out and then on the very next turn, you're going to go completely crazy. Or, you know, maybe going crazy that turn. And by crazy, I mean you're mostly using the cost reduction effect um, rather than the anthem. The plus one, plus one for a seven mana card. Yeah, I can see how that's a little bit lackluster. It feels a little bit more like trinket text. Um, but given Morphon's high cost, it can be a you know a good time to prepare cards beforehand. So I'm thinking along the lines of uh, I suppose you could use slivers since they tend to have a lot of colors in their mana cost as opposed to a lot of uh, you know generic mana, um, or something like Shadowborn Apostles or Persistent Petitioners. Like that could also be a nice thing that you suddenly throw a ton out um, with Morphon's cost reduction ability that people you know are suddenly caught off guard. Like Morphon is sort of the precursor to a big explosion in that way. Um, there's also, though, I think Morphon could be served not only just with the, the smaller tribes, but also maybe some underserved super big ones. Um, the deck that's coming to my mind is the one that Josh Likwai played on game nights. I believe that he went with Avatar Tribal, and those things have really big mana costs. So you can devote the deck to ramping out a bunch of stuff, and then that ramp helps you not only cast the huge creatures in your deck, but so does Morphon, and the cumbersome mana cost doesn't feel as intrusive with all of the big creatures anyway. That's something that you need to do naturally. Whereas, you know, having a bunch of mana ramp in a deck that has a bunch of low-to-the-ground creatures can feel a little bit awkward. Something with a bigger tribe might be another way to build around more fun and not feel as though the ramp and the creature cost reduction is uh, non-synergistic. I'm not sure if all of that makes sense, but I think that there are a couple of different ways where you can use him sort of as a quick explosion or you can have him as a steady tempo for really big creature tribes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the cost reduction... It's not great, but also it's not irrelevant. I think I think it's it's the variance on Morphon's cost reduction matters a lot. Um, I've toyed around even with an idea where uh, you 
all the ramp is colorless because you just want to get more fun and make it, make a rule for myself basically that the only colored mana sources I can quote unquote produce are from Morophon. Um, that way, it's like it's it's a colorless deck essentially because I'm only paying the colorless costs on all my creatures. Um, I don't think it'd be any good, but like I, I think that something like that, you know, if you, if you put more effort into it than I did, <laughs> then I don't think it's going to be impossible to do so. Um, I think that it's it's fine. There, it's definitely a valid point that yes, at seven mana, you you ramp out and put all that effort into getting more fawn down. There's probably some more powerful things you could be doing in five colors. Um, so I, I think it just really depends on on how competitive you want it to be, how serious you're taking the deck. Because um, I do think it's it's fun, like it's a very explosive commander if you built your deck right. Because all of a sudden, if you're playing some, you know, three and four mana creatures, like you all of a sudden you cast. Uh, what are they? The Nephilim. You cast five Nephilim for free, basically. I mean, that's a powerful turn right there. Um, and that's mm -hmm. possible with more fun. So I think it's it's fine. It's just how much are you going to exploit that cost reduction? Because um, if you're only getting one or two mana per creature, then it's I can see why you'd be lukewarm on it. It is kind of funny. For being named the Boundless and for being an everything tribal commander, Morphon is surprisingly particular. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I, I think some of these things are a little bit mental, too. Um, you know, years ago, I had built a Raikou of Two Reflections deck, and I remember one of the problems I had with it was, you know, I'd draw a Cultivate or something, and be like, oh, but if I wait till Raikou's out to cast that Cultivate, I can copy it and put two lands into play and put two lands into hand. And you, can, you can't do that. Like, you, if, if, you, if you, like, don't do anything in your deck until your commander's out so you can slightly exploit it, you're never going to do anything. Like I think sometimes you just have to tell yourself, "Yes, that would be great." However, I'm just going to cultivate. And I think more fun. There's a little bit of that. Sure, it would be great to have that big power turn, but sometimes you just need to play some magic. And if you can exploit more fun, that's all well and good. But maybe you just don't every game too. Yeah, also true. Might be one of those commanders that's more of an enabler than the direct focus. Yeah. That's definitely something too. Alrighty, let's move on to our next question. It is from Michael Boothroyd. What kind of pet cards do you guys have? Maybe cards that you know aren't very good, but you love them anyways. I mean, anything with dogs. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the, the question. Um, or in the way that you can bribe me. Um, I mean, anything big and splashy and green. If it's a big creature, I'm, I'm probably going to play it. Aluren is kind of that pet card for me, I know. I know it gives... I like that your pet card is a card that's also like really busted in things like Legacy. <laughs> In Legacy, like, yeah. It is an objectively good card. But it, but it's it's a card with potentially a downside, though. Like, everybody at the table, you know, if, if I play an Aluren, say the Elves player combos out, then, well, I, that, that really didn't help me at all. And that's happened a couple times. But I just, I, I love creature combos, so anything that centers around that, I am okay with admitting that I force it more than I should. Dana, any pet cards? Um, you know, I've mentioned Psychic Possession on the show before, um, because the reality is 99% of the time I'd be better off running Mystic Remora in that slot, which I'm not running in that deck. Um, but it's just a fun card that I like to cast in, you know, I like to have it in one deck. I'm never going to not have it in one of my blue decks because it's a pet card and it creates fun, interesting board states. And that's just what it is. So <clears throat> that's a good example of one that I always kind of like to um, have out there. Um, I still think um, Overwhelming Intellect um, is a card that I like. It's a counter spell, counter creature spell where you draw cards equal to its CMC. Um, you know, I think there's probably better draw spells and there's better counter spells. I think I've done a um, challenge of stats on it before. 
I can probably um, just run a better counterspell in most of those decks and you know deal with draw later on. But it's a fun card. I like nailing someone's Elish Norn and drawing, you know, seven. Um, <clears throat> so that would be one. I think is definitely a pet card of mine as well. Um, I still try to make Deadbridge Chant work twice a year. <laughs> Tina, I'm sorry. It's never going it to happen. It 100% is never going to happen. But I still, like, talk myself into giving it a go. So, like, that's one I wouldn't even call it a pet card, but it's one that keeps – it's like the McDonald's Shamrock Shake where every year I come back and convince myself it's going to be good this time. And it just <laughs> never is. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you guys will not be surprised to hear that the pet cards on my list are going to be, you know, Golgari cards. Uh, the main one is Masaryk, Crawl Death Priest, who when you sacrifice stuff, or when anyone sacrifices stuff, you get plus one counters on your things. I try to foist that into any deck that I can. And it's not that it's a bad card, it just doesn't work very directly with the synergies that I happen to be using. It wouldn't be bad, it just wouldn't be spectacular. And and that, that makes me sad, because I really, really like that card. And I keep trying to force him into places that he doesn't belong. The same also goes for Titania, Protector of Argoth. I love graveyardy things, and bringing lands back from the graveyard, even in just regular dedicated necromancy decks, is something that I occasionally try to do as well. I'm like, no, no, I'm losing focus. I'm going to Plan C. I need to, you know, go back onto what is this deck actually specifically trying to do. But honestly, the Titania thing might just be because of Magali Villeneuve's amazing art on Titania. I'm just totally in love with it. So those those are probably two some legendary creatures that I always keep try to put into the 99. They are good cards, just in different places than where I continue to try to put them. That's fair. At least you admit that you know that you're not doing always the best at all times. Oh man, Matt is on a relentless mission to make oh. sure that I <laughs> I never am proud of myself and that he knows that he always wins the bets and, and things like that. Matt, why why can't we all share in the love here, Matt? Why you got to put me down like this? Uh, well, how about this? We'll share the last email together. How about that? <laughs> I would love to. All right, so DL Bucieri, <laughs> Bucieri, I, I butchered your last name, DL, and I'm sorry, but DL sends us an email. It says, my doggo and I thank you for letting me submit a question late. Your doggo is pretty cute. Uh, I often, it's a Labradoodle. Every Labradoodles are, are, we, I had one in college. One of my roommates had one and we were buds. So anyways, DL's question is, or DL says, I often find that skills I picked up in magic are transferable to, transferable to real life and vice versa. What are some skills that you brought, that you've brought to the game from real life that influence your MTG play style? What lesson skills, uh, have you learned from magic that you were able to then bring into your real life? Thanks again for the great podcast. And here's another picture of my doggo. It is a really cute dog. <laughs> All dogs are cute, Matt. Come on. They are. Uh, this is this is one of my favorite questions. I feel like an entire podcast, not even just an episode, but an entire actual podcast could be devoted to just this particular question. Lessons that are learned in magic and transferable to real life. What comes to mind for you guys, Dana? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say so much real life, but like I think there's things from Mad from Magic and Commander in particular that I've transferred to other games, maybe to a degree. Um, one of the things in in Commander in particular I've done or do is make a plan to like practice doing a thing. So I'll play a game and say, okay, one of my goals tonight is I'm not gonna cast my commander before turn five. I want to focus on playing where my commander isn't an important part of this deck and I want to work on not being overly aggressive and not overextending. And then the next time I'll be like, okay, I'm going to work as, I'm going to focus on making sure I change targets when the you know person with the best board state shifts and don't get too tunnel vision. So like 
that's something in Commander that I that I intentionally do, where I like I, I set a goal to work on this aspect of my game. And after I have done that in Commander, I've since found myself doing that in other games in particular that I play, where I'm like, okay, well, we're playing this you know team game that my team has clearly lost, but it won't end for 15 minutes, so I might as well do something productive in this last 15 minutes and work on this particular skill or work on that particular skill. Or, you know, even if the game isn't a loss, I'm just going to say, okay, this game I want to focus on trying to, you know, do really good wall jumps in League of Legends because that's a useful skill to have. So I'm just going to spend my time doing that and teach myself that skill. So that's probably the best one I would say is magic has taught me to use that kind of really focused, compartmentalized practice thinking in other games and other things I do. Interesting. Matt, what do you think? So I think my big thing is is communicating and, and kind of mediating what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. Not quite to the, the politics level, but just in, you know sitting down and, and being open with, um, you know, and having a little bit, I guess, self-awareness when you were talking about decks. Um, I, I talk several times on the podcast about have, have conversations with your play group. If you guys sit down and, you know, somebody's oppressive, how do you handle that conversation? How do you, de- you know, democratically go to them and say, okay, you know, we, we want you to have fun. We want you to play decks that you want to play. But at the same time, there's eight other players here and none of us are really enjoying playing against that deck. So learning how to navigate those conversations, I know I took to um, my old job where, you know, I was in operations, I was training people. So being able to give, you know, some constructive criticism and then not only how to give it, but how to take it. Because, um, you know, being in a leadership role, you, you never want to make sure that you're above reproach um, or above, you know, criticism as well, I guess. Um, so when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, I, this is one thing I need from you or this is one thing that, you know, we, we think you can improve on, being able to take that feedback and then apply it to whatever you're doing. Same things with decks. You know, being open to people giving you feedback and saying, hey, this card, you played it and you were really excited about it, but it kind of sucked. Um is there something else that you can be doing? And so keeping that in mind and not being too proud to you know, take feedback from other people, um, those are some skills that I think more people, especially Magic players, uh, could take to heart and then you know, execute not just in Magic but in real life. I really especially love that last one. Magic teaches you, like, we're always tuning decks. We're always improving decks. That is a thing that we are also able to do to ourselves. We can always improve small facets of our own personalities and our own lives, too. And that's a really great lesson to take away as well. I think that's really, really heartening to always be, you know, moving forward and always being constructive. I love that. Um, For me, I think one of the big lessons, even just when brewing, I, you know, I make one change to a deck, but that can cause a chain reaction throughout the entire rest of the deck. And that is something that also I think applies to real life as well. Small details matter quite a lot. The small things that you do at your job can have a big impact on everyone else in the office, for example. Um, but probably number one lesson for me is uh, learning not to dirtle. There are a lot of decks that I've played that don't go anywhere and they just spin their wheels. And since I work in a job that's partially customer service, that's not a thing that I can necessarily do when I'm, you know, interfacing with uh, other people, my higher ups or, um, you know, I'm working with customers. Like, that's not a thing. I can't spin my wheels and buy time and just, you know, provide small value. I've got to get directly to the point. I've got to be fixated on the goal and I've got to get there efficiently. And I think that that's a great lesson that was tough to learn in magic, but also great to apply in real life, too, to make sure that you're always going somewhere while continuing to do those constructive improvements over time as well. That's that's probably my number one is uh, learning not to dirtle. 
Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, um, one actually thing I would add on here that um, I, I mentioned a, a game versus a game, but I guess in real life, this just kind of popped into my head. Um, not just stating opinions as facts, uh, qualify them that they are your opinion. I think that's something that I've had to learn, not necessarily from playing commander, but in talking about commander on social media. Um, I've gotten much better at making sure I qualify my thoughts on something as an opinion versus just stating this thing is true. Well, I mean, that's just your opinion, man. Yeah, I guess. Oh. Right. Yeah, there you go. You got me. You got me. <laughs> Practice Listeners. what you preach, Dana. Practice what you preach. Oh, my goodness. Listeners, thank you guys so much for sending all of yes. these questions in. It was really, really fun. I'm sure that we've got plenty that we were not able to get to, but this will not be the only mailbag of holding show. I am sure that we will revisit it again in the future. And I would love to know what listeners' questions are to these, excuse me, what listeners' answers are to these questions as well. All these questions have got my brain a little turned around. So I think it's about time that we call this episode to a close. We're not going to challenge the stats on this particular episode because Dana's got to go and we're all about to enjoy some really fun 4th of July festivities. (laughs) See, case in point, I'm completely turned around. (laughs) I think we need to uh, call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, even after I just fumbled over all of my words, where can they find us all? Matt? So you can find me here, carrying the podcast, at (laughs) Mathemus55 on the Twitters, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S 55. And Dana. you can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach, and you can find me on my <clears throat> other podcast twice a week, CMDR <laughs> Central. <laughs> you find you find him with his other parents. <laughs> oh my goodness! And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L O A D three R. You can follow Idiotrek and the podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at idiotrekcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section on Idiotrek, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, Idiotrek your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>